The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Oh God, we do rejoice and praise you for that transforming power that changed our lives. That drew us to yourself, where you have made us your people, where you have given us your spirit, where you've spared us from the wrath that we deserve by the gift of your Son. Father, may we seek to live lives of gratitude for that precious gift. May we seek to live lives that are pleasing to you in all we say. No, we do. And may we seek to live lives that reveal your love through us to those around us. Bless your church today. Bless your people as we worship. In this place and around the world, Lord, believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ have gathered to worship you all over, everywhere. And we pray that the power of your Spirit might be at work, that lives would be changed, that souls would be saved as your church is gathering even now. For this is a dark world we live in. Sadly, there are many empty, empty churches that are just tourist sites now. And we pray, Father, that you would send revival. Even here today, we've gathered, Lord, we brought our baggage with us. We brought the stuff from work last week, the problems and difficulties we had, the relationship issues we're struggling through now. We, um, we brought with us our financial troubles and, and other needs, Lord. And we just pray that we might just set those things aside, lay them at the foot of the cross, give them to you so that you might there might not be any barrier for your piercing our hearts with your word this day restore us strengthen us mold us shape us we lift up pastor greg today as he prepares to visit to go to norfolk we pray lord that um In his ministry as a chaplain, you would use him in the lives of others. You give him grace, give him boldness as he ministers to those around him. Give him safety as he travels. As he delivers this message today, or you deliver your message through him today, Father, we pray that you would send it straight to the hearts of your people. And we rejoice that we can trust you to do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14 this morning. It's an interesting thing to to preach from God's Word on a lot of different levels. Uh, But one of the ways that, as a pastor who does this, some level of regularity, that I find it interesting is that the things you preach, you are accountable to live. And really, in a lot of ways, depending on what the topic is for any given moment, um, most people don't know whether you do or you don't. Uh, 
Um, I mean, some things, obviously, they know whether you're a joyful person or not. So if you're preaching on joy, people can say, yeah, that's not him. Or, um, you know, things like that. But there are other things that, that are internal matters that, uh, that nobody knows whether you live them or you don't. And sometimes, I think Pastor Frank would um, attest to this as well, uh, we, we're called to preach things that we know, that we know uh, we don't live out well, that are a challenge for us. And uh, this morning is one of those occasions for me. Uh, the message I bring to you this morning, uh, I'm praying as as it comes out of my mouth in your direction that the Spirit of God would apply it in mine to a greater degree than he has been working through it this week. Um, so uh, I, I just need to throw that confession out there. Uh, what, what I speak to you this morning, I'm certainly no expert on um, so, praise the Lord, they're not my words, they're the Lord's. Um, he is an expert on these things. So look with me this morning, John chapter 14, verse 27. Just one verse this morning. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. And neither let them be afraid. The word of the Lord. A very simple, a very simple directive this morning that's got very simple language that is not in any way, shape, or form complicated for any of us to comprehend or understand. Yet, I trust that you'll find, as I do, incredibly difficult to live. To live. So we'll work at that this morning. We'll challenge one another with it. I want to begin by just painting a picture for you, and I want you to, in your minds, just imagine this scene. Maybe you've seen something like it play out before, but just imagine this. I want you to picture uh, with me a swimming pool. And I want you to picture uh, in the swimming pool uh, a, a dad down in the water. And I want you to picture on the edge of the swimming pool a, a, a little girl. A little girl with her, with her swimmies on her arms. You know what I'm talking about? The little inflatable things that you put on. And I want you to imagine the scene. If you're a parent, probably you've seen this scene play out at some point in your life. Dad's in the water. Little girl is on the side. And, and dad's holding out his arms. And what's he saying? He's saying, come on, honey, jump. And on the side, right on the edge, you know, the little girl standing on the edge, her feet over the edge, and she's looking at Dad, and she's looking at the water. And what does she do? She stands there for a minute, and she hesitates. Maybe she teeters toward the water a little bit and then comes back. Maybe she steps away and says, Dad, I, I can't do it. And down in the water is Dad the whole time trying to coax her in. Come on, honey, it's okay. Jump. I'll catch you. I'll catch you. And yet there she stands, right by the edge of the water. As a little girl, she knows her dad. And she, she trusts him, right? He's, he's been with her all of her life up to this point. He's got a record of faithfulness. And yet the circumstance that she finds in front of her is frightening. It's frightening for her. And inside of her heart is, is swelling to... Two emotions, two experiences that are very real to all of us. On the one hand, she's afraid, right? She's afraid. Because the water is deep and she can't swim yet. So there's fear. 
And on the other side, there's anxiety, right? There's anxiety. What if dad doesn't catch me? What if I go under? And so there she stands on the edge of the pool being coaxed to jump in. But in her heart, there's fear and there's anxiety. For her to ever make the leap off the side of that pool, those two things have got to be dealt with in some way inside her little heart. She's got to somehow get across that fear. She's got to somehow get across that anxiety of what might happen in order for her to exercise those legs and jump. And I think in some way, each and every one of us can identify with the position of that little girl, right? I mean, maybe in your life, I'm sure, because you're grown-ups, it's not about jumping into a swimming pool. I trust most of you could do that or could have at some point. I see you back there, Teresa, shaking your head. But you know circumstances in your life that are just like that. All of us can identify with those moments in our life where circumstances that perhaps we haven't invited invade our life and we find ourselves swelling up with things like fear and anxiety. And like that little girl, we we know some things that are true, but still we're struggling. And it's hard for us to move. It's hard for us to step forward. It's hard for us to act because we're clouded by fear, because we're filled with anxiety. We all know what it's like to face circumstances that generate those things within us, that frighten us, that trigger our fears. And all of us have different kinds of fears, right? In fact, in our language, we even give names and categories to the things that can cause us fears. We call them phobias, right? Do you have those in your life? Are there things that you're particularly afraid of? I'll confess, I hate spiders. I hate spiders. Let me say that again. I hate spiders. I don't mind a snake. I just hate a spider. If you see me walking around somewhere and you see me running doing this right here, that just means, and I'm screaming like a little girl, that just means he just walked through a spider web and he thinks there's a spider crawling on him. You want to terrify, Pastor Frank's seen that before. If you want to terrify me, just bring a spider nearby. I did the big, small, whatever, I can't stand him. But you have things that frighten you too. And we've got names for categories of general things that, that frighten us. We call them phobias, and there's thousands upon thousands of different actual named phobias. Let me give you a few examples and see if you can identify what any of these are. How about this one? Um, the first one, electrophobia. Anybody know what that is? That is the fear of chickens. Fear of chickens. Do you have that? I bet you can guess this one. Chickens are frightening. If you've ever been in a, with a rooster, you, you know what a chicken can do. How about this one, arithmophobia? You probably can get that one, right? That's the fear of numbers, the fear of numbers. How about xanthophobia? Do you know what xanthophobia is? It's the fear of the color yellow. Clearly, Isla doesn't have that because Homer's got a yellow shirt. She's sitting next to him. How about bromidophobia? Do you know what bromidophobia is? That's the fear of body smells. Pastor Frank's been in Europe for quite some time these last weeks. I don't know if that means anything. (laughs) Here's a phobia I can't pronounce, but I'll let you try and pronounce it and see if you can figure out what it is. (laughs) That is the fear of long words, of all things. 
Or perhaps you have lots of phobias and you suffer from phobophobia, which is simply the fear of being afraid. Um, that's pretty rough when you're afraid of being afraid. How about alumophobia? Not, it's alumphobia. That's the fear of garlic. Stay away from Italian restaurants. Or chetophobia. Chetophobia is the fear of hairy people. I don't know where you find hairy people. You can probably guess this one, odontophobia. Odontophobia. Is Wendell here this morning? I don't see Wendell. It's fear of teeth. One that you're particularly concerned with this morning, homilophobia. It's the fear of sermons. <laughs> Be not afraid. Be not afraid this morning. Well, maybe you're not afraid of hairy people or the color yellow or body smells. But uh, I can imagine that when I say the word fear, there are certain things that pop in your mind, things that you're afraid of, things that when they pop up in your life, you, you, you get that familiar feeling. You, you're afraid. It begins to well up inside you. you. You experience it bodily. You feel it. It affects your thinking. The circumstances of our lives, every one of our lives, give us lots of great reasons to be afraid. You lose a job. It generates fear. You get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, it generates fear. Relationships in your life begin to disintegrate or change, and we're afraid. Something happens to somebody that we love, that we love. generates fear. Retirement can be a, a frightening experience for some. Many are afraid of the future. Many are afraid of financial scenarios or financial prospects in their life. You're afraid of just world events that take place. And if you watch any television news, for the most part, especially like the 24-hour news channels, I'm convinced that they're geared toward doing nothing other than generate fear, because that's what you'll find if you watch them very long. You'll find you're afraid of something. Somebody, somewhere, some event, generate fear in your heart. So what is fear? John Ortberg gives a good definition of fear. He calls fear this, an internal warning cry that danger is nearby, and we had better do something about it. It's designed to be unpleasant enough to motivate us to take action and remove ourselves from whatever is threatening. It readies our body to flee, hide, or fight. It's a good practical definition of what fear is. There's a psychological component of it. Fear becomes overwhelming in our minds sometimes, and it begins to squeeze everything else out. And then there's a physiological kind of response to fear. You begin to get afraid, and what happens to your palms? They get a little sweaty. What happens to your mouth? It gets dry. In which case, you could lick your palms. But that's a different story. Rush Dozier says this, Our minds can detect danger within one-tenth of a second of initial perception before conscious decision-making even kicks in. We detect fear instantly and danger, and fear begins to well up. One author said it this way, When a fear response is triggered, our bodies go into action. Quick, quick energy hormones like adrenaline get pumped into the muscles and the bloodstream. Blood drains from the skin's surface, which is what produces the paleness of fear, and it gets diverted into the large muscles like the legs for a quick getaway. Your heart pounds to enable your body to go into overdrive. Your eyes widen and your pupils expand to take in the maximum amount of information. Many of the body's other systems 
like the ones for reproduction, digestion, and so on, shut down in order to mobilize us for action. I mean, when fear begins to well up, all sorts of things take place in your mind and in your body. And fear isn't always a bad thing, is it? In fact, fear can, in many circumstances, be a really good thing, right? Can you think of situations where fear would be a a good thing? It's a natural kind of a fear that comes into our life. It's a, a normal response mechanism that God has built into us to allow us to escape things that are potentially harmful for us, right? You're in Africa, and you look, and a lion is chasing you. What happens? You're afraid. You're afraid, and that's a good kind of a fear. Why? Because that fear motivates you to do what? Run faster than whoever else is near you, right? That's a good kind of a fear. It motivates you to run. There's a good kind of a natural fear that, uh, that, uh, that motivates us to, to keep us from, from, from harm. It's a, the kind of fear that keeps a child from touching a hot stove. It's the kind of fear that keeps us from driving too recklessly, that keeps us from violating the law. The kind of fear that, that protects us, that's built into us to protect us. That's not a bad thing. But fear becomes a bad thing when it goes from being a natural response that's built in to protect us to becoming something that's a response to things that really don't threaten us and become paralyzing to us. And they prevent us from from obeying God. It prevents us from trusting God. It causes us to think and to act selfishly. And it, it springs from unbelief and an unbiblical sort of a thinking. And if you've lived very long in your life, you've understood that kind of fear too. The kind of fear that can immobilize the mind. The kind of fear that's, that's aimed at something that really shouldn't be frightening us. It's the kind of fear that can cripple us mentally. It's the kind of fear that can cripple us. It can stop us, prohibit us from doing the work God's called us to do. From obeying God in situations where we need to obey. From living lives that please Him. So fear, a good thing that can go in a really bad direction... But anxiety is another issue altogether, right? Fear is different than anxiety. Anxiety is a whole other deal. And it's something that a lot of folks in our world, in our culture, understand very well as well. The kind of thing that the little girl feels standing next to the edge of the pool, that anxiety about what might happen. I don't know what's going to happen. This could happen. That could happen. And I'm feeling anxious about that. I'm troubled. I'm troubled is the word that we find in Scripture. Stirred up inside. Worried. Statistics tell us that over 40 million Americans struggle with serious anxiety symptoms, enough to register in statistics, that is, and there are more that struggle with lesser degrees of that. It's one of the most common diagnosed mental illnesses in the United States. Approximately 18 to 20 percent of the population deals with severe anxiety at some regular interval in their life. People who struggle with it in very serious ways are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor and six times more likely to be hospitalized. There's an author by the name of Patricia Pearson who wrote a book a few years ago called A Brief History of Anxiety, Yours and Mine. She does a decent job of of chronicling the, the, the spread of serious anxiety amidst our culture. She says this, she says, it's an unnerving time to be alive. Everybody's worried about their jobs, never mind this climate change stuff. 
She notes that three of the top ten drugs selling in America are drugs aimed at dealing with anxiety and other mental health issues, but primarily anxiety. She also notes that 28.8% of Americans will suffer from anxiety in their lifetime, and we have the highest level in the world in America. 28.8%, if you compare that to Mexico, 6.6%, we're nine times more likely as Americans to deal with serious anxiety than a citizen of Shanghai, China. Now, I don't have the explanation for that, and I don't think she provides a good explanation for that either. But it should suffice us to realize that in our culture, people are struggling with anxiety. And in a crowd this size, the statistics play out, would tell us that a good portion of you understand this very well as well. Perhaps even this morning you've come in anxious, with anxiety welling up in your life, clouding your thoughts, dominating your thoughts. It's clear in God's word that God's people are not immune to fear and anxiety. We see it all throughout Scripture. God has to consistently and continually warn his people and challenge them in this area. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, right after the death of Moses, Joshua has taken over leadership in obedience to the Lord of the people of Israel. And one of the first things God says to him is this. After the death of Moses, this is what the writer records for us, and then God's going to speak. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And he goes on in the verses following that to say to Joshua multiple times, Joshua, I want you to lead the people. I want you to lead them in the promised land. And Joshua, here's what you need to know. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Don't be afraid, Joshua. Why do you think God had to say to Joshua at least three times in one brief conversation, don't be afraid? Because he understood Joshua's heart and he knew that he'd be prone to fear. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 and following, we see the calling of Ezekiel. And God puts a call on this this, uh, tremendous prophet to go and do something. And here's what the call looks like. God speaks to Ezekiel and he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nation of rebels who've rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, This says the Lord God. And whether they hear you or refuse to hear you, they will know that a prophet's been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house. And it goes on to tell Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're going to deliver a message to people who don't want you there, who don't want to listen to you, who are not going to receive the message, and no one's going to respond positively. In fact, they're going to hate you for bringing the message. And Ezekiel, you need to know in the middle of all that, what? You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to allow fear to well up in your life and consume you because that's a real potential in such an environment. And on and on in the Bible, we see examples of that same thing. And when we find ourselves in John chapter 14, in our text this morning, it's just that kind of occasion. You know, if you've been trekking with us through the Gospel of John, that we're in a conversation between Jesus and his apostles on the night before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. 
And you know he's been explaining to them all along that he's about to leave. They've left everything to follow him. They've left their homes. They've left their careers. They've left everything to follow him. And they've followed him for these three years now. And he's been explaining that he's going to go away, that he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to die, and he's going to leave them. And it's just beginning to to, to sink into them. It's just beginning to dawn on them the reality of that. And already at this moment, fear and anxiety are beginning to well up in their lives. What's that going to mean for us? What's that going to mean for the ministry? How are we going to go on when Jesus is gone? How are we going to survive without him? How are we going to carry on the mission with him gone? And those fears and those anxieties are going to ramp up the next day when the arrest and crucifixion take place. But Jesus knew these things were coming up. He knew what they were about to face. And he knew exactly how they were going to be prone to respond. And in fact, how they would actually respond initially. And so in some of his last words, in this last conversation, Jesus says to them these words in John chapter 14, verse 27. I believe to anchor them when the events begin to unfold in these next days. He says to them, he says to them, peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. It's really a a partial sort of restatement of what he said earlier in this chapter at the beginning of this statement. But Jesus speaks to anchor them. He wants to anchor them for what's coming. He wants them to know they don't have to be consumed with fear and anxiety once he's gone. He wants them to know that he is going to provide for them an alternative to those things. An alternative response that should mark their lives. And that alternative is something he calls peace. Peace. It really is in a lot of ways the opposite of fear and anxiety. Peace, isn't it? When we look to the text there, the scriptures speak of peace in a lot of different ways. The word peace is used simply in many cases as a, as a greeting. As a greeting, particularly in the Old Testament, still used that way in modern Hebrew. If you go to Israel, you'll hear often people greet one another with the word, what? Shalom, which means peace. But there's at least three categories of peace that I think we see in the, in, in the text. There's probably more if we were to break it out further than that. But for our purposes this morning, we'll talk about three. There's a vertical sort of a peace. That's the peace that is between us and God. I'm just calling it vertical simply so you'll understand it deals with us and God. There's the kind of peace that is involved in the relationship we have with our creator. There's a second kind of peace that's an internal sort of a peace. It's the kind of peace that we experience in the daily life. It's the kind of, it's the kind of peace that is the alternative to fear and anxiety, these things that we've been talking about in the introduction. The focus of our message this morning And then there's a third kind of thing that I'm just calling external peace. Just so you understand, it's the kind of peace that comes out of us that that, that deals with how we relate to other people. And I think there's a direct relationship between these three. In other words, the first and foremost kind of peace that has to mark our lives is vertical peace, the peace with our Creator. If we don't have that kind of a peace going on in our lives, then the other two, there's no hope for it. But once we've got a peace with God, then there's a, the result of that becomes an internal peace that buoys us, that anchors us through all of life's circumstances. And it becomes the experiential side of what happens in the vertical. And the outplay of that in our relationships with other people becomes then the external peace. 
That first one, the, the vertical piece, is critical. It's the necessary foundation to every single other kind of piece that there is. And without it, there is no sort of internal peace. You see, it's an objective sort of a thing. When I say vertical piece, I'm talking about something that's objective, something that, that either is or is not there. It's not so much experiential as it is objective. It's either true or it's not true of us. We either have peace with God or we do not. The Bible makes clear that every one of us comes into this world not at peace with God. That we come into this world both by nature and by choice, sinners, who have rebelled against our Creator. And this has been the reality ever since the Garden of Eden. When sin entered into humanity's experience, every human being is a sinner, both by nature and by choice. And that sin, the Bible tells us, that rebellion in our hearts, it separates us from our Creator. Romans chapter 5, 8 through 10. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But look at this part. For while we were, what? Enemies, we were reconciled to God. People who are sinners are also people who are God's enemies. That's the parallel that Paul's painting. Because we are all sinners, because we all come into this world sinners by nature, and then the moment we have the option, we become sinners by choice, the Bible says a separation occurs between us and our Creator. We are sinners who are separated from our God because He is holy and will not associate with sin. And we position ourselves not as just neutral people in relation to Him, but we position ourselves as rebels who are His enemy. His enemy. We are not in any, in any sense at peace with God. We're at war with Him. And no human being is neutral. Jesus said it another way. He said, you're either for me, with me, or you're what? You're against me. There is no neutrality. And because of this, the Bible tells us we're under a death sentence. The, the, the wage for our sin, what we've earned by our sin, is an eternal separation from God and eternal death. And unless something happens in our life to change that status, that's exactly what will happen the moment we die. Our rebellion will be locked in for eternity. And there will be no hope. But the good news is, the good news is the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is there is a way for people who are God's enemies, who are at war with him, to be reconciled to him. To, to make peace with him. The Bible is replete in the New Testament with the reality of this as a part of the gospel. That there is a way that we can make peace with God. There is a way that we can have vertical peace with our Creator against whom we've rebelled, against whom we've been at war. And it tells us there's only one way to make that peace. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second part of that passage, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by what? By the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. We were enemies who were reconciled by the death of his son. By placing our faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, where he shed his blood as a substitute on our behalf, taking our sin upon himself, and by faith we place in him, he then imputes his righteousness to us. And the net result, or one of the net results of that is, we become reconciled to God. Because our sin has now been paid for and the debt eternally paid for and perfectly so by the spilled blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. 
And the relationship that was broken and separated is now reconciled. It's now reconciled. And the result of that is peace. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, those of us who were formerly God's enemies make peace and have peace. And what's interesting is Jesus was talking to them about this. No doubt this was part of what shaded this conversation. Because within really just a matter of of a day, he was going to go to the cross where he was going to die as a substitute and purchase that vertical peace for them and for all others who would ever place their faith in him. You know, it's a note to us. We don't always understand what God's doing in our circumstances. When Jesus is crucified, the initial response of the disciples is what? It's fear and it's anxiety. They run and hide and they scatter. They're afraid because of what's happened. They're afraid for a multitude of reasons. They're afraid because of what's just happened. They're afraid of what might potentially happen to them. They're filled with anxiety because they don't understand fully what's going to happen with them and the mission in the future. And the very circumstances that were causing them fear and anxiety were one at the same time, the very circumstances that were purchasing their what? Their peace, the thing that they were not experiencing. It's a reminder to us that sometimes life happens and the circumstances around us would would seek to generate within us fear and anxiety. And in the midst of those very things, God is doing something we don't understand. It helps us to know that. But if a man doesn't have this kind of a peace, if he's never made peace with his creator, if he's never placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's never been reconciled to his father, then that, if that hasn't transpired in your life, then there's no hope of the, etern- the internal kind of peace that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time this morning. You cannot have a true and real internal peace that's going to buoy you and sustain you and anchor you through all of life's circumstances if you don't first have the vertical peace with your creator. Because the kind of peace that's internal comes from him. And if you're cut off from him, you're cut off from it. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, you need to know him. And the pressing matter that's in your life right now is is that and that alone. You need to trust Christ and be reconciled to your creator. So that vertically you can have peace. But that second kind of peace is what we want to talk about with the remainder of our time. That internal kind of peace. This is the, the subjective experience that we, that we have as we move through the circumstances of life. It's a subjective experience that, that anchors us, that we experience when, when life around us and circumstances around us go nuts. It's the kind of peace that Paul describes as something that passes understanding. What does that look like? What does that internal peace look like in action? I think we see it displayed in a lot of biblical characters. I want to do just a quick little survey and show you this. When you go to the Old Testament, I think of Daniel. Do you you remember Daniel in the Old Testament? Do you remember Daniel existed in 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 a culture where the king is has decreed that he's to be worshipped alone and you're not to pray to any other god and the call on Daniel's life is obey God or be killed and what does Daniel calmly do? He prays to his God. He obeys God. In his own room with the window open, he prays. Understanding the risk, 
understanding the circumstances, he obeys God. It's, it's peace. Did, did Daniel have a lot of good reasons to be afraid? Somebody says, if you pray, you're going to be killed. Does that generate fear in you? Is there a good reason to be fearful? Of course there is. Is there a reason to be anxious? And yet Daniel's filled with peace. Even when he faces a, oh, I don't know what just happened. Is that the Lord speaking? Yeah. Even when he faces a den of lions, Daniel's at peace. He's at peace. He experiences. That's what it looks like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends. You remember those guys? You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? You know, bow down to the, uh, to the, to the golden statue and worship the false idol. And what do these faithful men do? Refuse. And they're called before the king. And in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 and, and following, they say to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, he's threatening to throw them into a, fur, a furnace that's blazing hot. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. You know what that is? That's peace. That's peace in action. That's that internal peace that, that in, the, in the face of circumstances that, that, that are, are very legitimate and logical reasons to be filled with fear and anxiety, they stand in perfect peace and are able to speak the truth and obey God in the midst of those circumstances. That's peace. It's little young David who, staring down a Goliath, says to everyone else who's terrified and filled with anxiety, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's peace. It's peace in the face of those circumstances. Everybody else was struggling with fear and anxiety, and yet David in the midst has peace. He writes about that later. Psalm 3, verses 1 through 8, Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom, who was chasing him down in order to do what? To kill him. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and I sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. You know what that is? That's peace. Tens of thousands on every side, perhaps. A son who's in rebellion, who's got armed men who's chasing you in order to kill you. And what does David say? He says, I'm up all night worried about this. That's not what he said, is it? He said... I lie down and I sleep. Can you sleep when you're afraid very easily? Can you sleep when you're filled with anxiety? You sleep when you're at peace. David says, I lie down, I sleep and I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. I won't be afraid. It's the same person who wrote words that I know you know. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will not fear evil. I'll fear no evil. Not be afraid will not allow fear to rule my heart. It's Paul who, in prison, cut off from his ministry with 
with false prophets and false teachers going behind to all the places where he's preached in established churches and trying to undercut his work and destroy the churches that he's planted. It's Paul who is sitting in prison with all of that going on around him, all of his life's work potentially hanging in the balance and him completely cut off from being able to do anything about it. He's able to write in Philippians chapter 1. Oh, I, I understand what's going on. I'm in this jail. This is my paraphrase. And there are people out there who are trying to discredit me and undercut the whole ministry and destroy it. But nevertheless, if Christ is being preached, it's okay. While I'm here, I'm going to rejoice. You know what that is? That's peace. That's what it looks like. It's Stephen, the early deacon of the early church, who in the midst of preaching a powerful sermon on God's truth to a very hostile audience is being literally stoned to death who's able in the midst of that very experience where his life is being taken from him, saying, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. That's peace. That's what it looks like. And there could be many other examples. Just kind of to summarize what what I'm seeing in these examples that I've given you and others, I'm going to give you three quick just characteristics of what peace looks like in action. It looks like a calm assurance. It looks like a calm assurance in the midst of troubling circumstances. So we saw in those examples I just gave you, right? Life has thrown lots of reasons to be filled with anxiety and fear, and yet the person who's at peace has a calm assurance. It's the calm kind of assurance that can say to King Nebuchadnezzar, do what you wish. Do what you wish. God can deliver me, and if he doesn't, it's okay. I'm at peace with that. That's what it looks like, a calm assurance. It looks like a selfless sort of a trust. Good example, once again, of those same three guys. It's okay. Whatever happens to me is okay. If you throw me in, that's okay. It's not all about me and preserving my life and preserving the things that I want. I I trust in God. He can deliver us, and if he doesn't, then I trust that he knows what's best. It's a selfless sort of a trust. It's a courageous response as well. That's David, right? I'm not scared of that Goliath. I wasn't afraid of the bear. I wasn't afraid of the lion. Because God's with me. I can be courageous. Let me ask you this question. When life throws circumstances at you that give you very good reasons to be afraid and filled with anxiety, how do you respond? Does this mark your response? Do you respond with a calm sort of assurance? Do you respond with a a selfless sort of trust in God that says, you know what, God, whatever happens, it's all right. I'm okay with that. Do you respond with with the ability to to be courageous and obey God even when you understand that there's going to be a cost and the circumstances could get worse? That's what peace looks like. And it's what the person looks like whose life is marked by it. I would suspect and I would submit to you that that's not a normal, natural response of any human being ever. It is only the response of a human being who's received that gift from their creator. Because Jesus tells us where this peace comes from in verse 27. He says, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. <clears throat> where does peace come from? Where does that calm assurance and that selfless trust, where does that come from? Where does the courage to respond in the face of those kind of circumstances come from? It comes from God. It's a gift. 
It's something that Christ is saying to his, his disciples who are about to face those very kinds of circumstances. I'm giving you something. I'm going away, but I'm giving you the ability to sustain yourself in the midst of all this. It's coming from me. It's mine, and I give it to you. True peace, internal peace, comes from God. He's the only source. And if we look at the, the broad view of Scripture, all of the Trinity is involved in bequeathing that to us. In this text, Christ says, it's my peace, and I'm giving it to you. But the peace that he's giving to them is going to be applied to, to them, applied to their hearts, and applied to their lives by another member of the Trinity, the one we spoke of last week, the Holy Spirit of God. It's going to be the gift of Christ applied to them by the Spirit of God. But it's his. He's both the source and the model of true peace. And if, you, if, you, if you've noticed anything about Jesus as we've watched his ministry through the Gospel of John in these first 14 chapters, you've seen lots of examples of that calm assurance, that selfless trust in his Father, that courageous response in the midst of fearful and frightening circumstances because it's who he is. He modeled peace for us. He's the model of it all. And he faced all sorts of circumstances. He faced mockery. He faced unbelief. He, he faced opposition. He faced provocation. He, he faced the death of a loved one. He faced the eminency of his own death. And in every case, he navigates with perfect peace. We see it no more clearly than we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, just shortly after this encounter in John chapter 14, when Jesus is praying and he understands what's about to go down. And he says to his father, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, what? Let it pass. But nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. That's a heart that's at peace. That's what peace looks like. I understand the cross is before me. If there's any other way to accomplish the plan, but if not, let me your will be done. He's both the model and the source of our peace. But that peace is applied to us by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. That's how it's applied to our lives in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, what? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness. How, how, does, it, how does peace get applied to your heart? How does the gift of Christ that He leaves behind to those who love Him, how does it become the reality in our lives? It, it's, it's applied there by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why people who don't have peace with their Creator, therefore don't have their Holy, the Holy Spirit in their life, therefore they can't possibly experience this kind of eternal peace because it's a gift of the Spirit and it's a fruit of His work in our lives. And we see this no more clearly than we see it in the lives of the apostles. Right after the crucifixion, they scatter, they're terrified, they're filled with anxiety. And after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes and fills them, what happens to those men? Are they terrified any longer? They're filled with courage, and they're willing to die at a moment's notice for Christ. And they launch out into their culture in broad daylight, and they open, and they declare the gospel of Jesus Christ with perfect peace in their hearts. With a calm assurance, with a selfless trust, with a, with a, a courage in their heart that comes from a heart that's at peace. Because the Spirit of God had applied the gift of Christ to their hearts. And it's a peace that comes from God applied by the Holy Spirit. And it's nothing like anything the world offers. The world has nothing like it to offer any human being. That's why Jesus says, I'm giving this to you. It's coming from me and it's mine. And it's not like what the world has. 
though the world offers peace, right? There's no end to people saying, here, follow me and I'll give you peace. Do this and you'll be at peace. Get my product and it'll bring peace into your life. Do this, do that. Take my course. Come follow my therapeutic model and you'll finally find peace. But the world always points us in general to one of two sources. Neither one of those is the true source. It either points us to to other people and other things in the world around us, none of which can actually bring peace. And we see people looking to other things in the world around us, trying to find desperately peace in their lives. We see people just just living their lives, pursuing every material possession they can accumulate because they think the next thing is going to bring them peace. We see people pursuing every dollar that they can possibly accumulate because they think if they have enough money in the bank or they have a large enough IRA or or a retirement portfolio that somehow that will become for them a source of peace as they look toward the future. There are others who are so distraught and so disturbed and so filled with anxiety and fear and it's such a dominant reality in their life they they run after alcohol and drugs to, to find some sort of a peace from their experience. And we run to other people, hoping to talk to them and hoping that they can offer us something that would give us peace. We look to politicians. If we can get the next guy elected and the right laws can get passed and all these things can happen, then there will be peace. And none of those sources around us, there's nothing earthly that can provide for you or me peace. Nothing. And no one. No matter what they promise. But the world constantly points us to to things on this level, to other people and other things in this world, or it points us inside of ourselves, right? That's the other direction that the world can point us. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Just look inside yourself, right? You're stronger than you think. You can find courage within. There's a whole industry, the whole self-esteem industry in our culture is built off of this idea. And there's no shortage of books and courses and workshops and therapists that will offer it to you. Patricia Pearson, who wrote that book that I mentioned earlier, The Brief History of Anxiety, she gets so many things right on the diagnostic side of pointing out the reality and the problem of anxiety. But when you get to the prescription side of it, she's just like the rest of the world. Here's what she says. What we need is to bend to the tempest like a pine or palm tree. Be flexible. Be adaptive. Be attuned, yet fully rooted in our own principles. What we need, in essence, is to look inside and to grow up. She goes on to say, don't look for the remedy for your troubles outside yourself. You are the medicine. You are the cure for your own sorrows. And that's so typical of what the world has to offer. Look around us other people and other things or look inside and in neither location will you ever find true peace because jesus says it's mine i am the source of peace it's mine i possess it i'm the source of it i've modeled it and i'm the one who gives it and if you want it you'll find it only here john MacArthur says this he says the world only offers an experience of momentary fleeting tranquility through self-indulgence materialism love romance substance abuse false religion psychotherapy or a host of other placebos but the world's pseudo peace is in reality the bliss of ignorance if unbelievers understood the wrath of god and the agonizing unrelieved eternal torment awaiting them in hell they would never enjoy a moment's peace in this life And he's right. He's right. It only comes from God. 
So how do we gain it? Well, we've already said it's applied by the Holy Spirit. That's true. So do we just sit around and wait? Do we just sit around and wait? All right. I'm going to hang out here, Holy Spirit, till you make it happen. Or do you think like every other spiritual reality of our lives, that there's a role we play in the process? Well, there is a role we play. And Jesus tells us about this here in verse 27 and in earlier in the chapter. I'm going to lay these out for you quickly because our time is up. I think they're pretty self-explanatory. The first, the first principle, the first thing, how do we gain peace in the midst of our troubling circumstances? Well, you can see all four of them at one time. How about that? The first one, stop allowing fear and anxiety to rule your heart. Jesus says it this way, let not your heart be troubled, nor be afraid. That's, that's a command. That's a command to do something. That's a command to fight something. Jesus is saying, you don't sit by as a passive observer with no role to play in this process. You are not a victim of your fears solely, and you're not a victim of your anxieties. He says, there's something you can do about it. He says, stop allowing fear and anxiety to rule in your heart. Fight back against it. When fear begins to well up, when anxiety begins to well up, don't just sit there and and, and look at yourself as an innocent victim. Fight it. Fight it like any other sinful response in your life. If we're going to have peace when life gets crazy around us, there's something we've got to stop doing. We've got to refuse to panic in those moments. And we've got to fight back against the tendency to allow fear and anxiety to rule us. He's not telling them it's wrong to be troubled. He's not telling them it's wrong to be occasionally afraid. What he's saying is don't let those things rule your life. Don't let those things dominate your thoughts. Don't think, let, allow those things to control your behavior. Fight it. Stop letting those things wreck you and rule you. Wayne Mack puts it in better words than I can. He says, stop giving your heart permission to be controlled by fear. Stop giving your heart permission to be controlled by fear and anxiety. We don't have to be controlled by it. We can fight it. It won't come natural. It won't come natural. But it begins at that place. Peace begins at that place. It begins by recognizing what's going on in our lives. And it begins by saying in this moment, fear, I'm not going to allow you to rule. Anxiety, I'm not going to allow you to dominate me. I'm going to fight you. Not because I'm so strong. Not because I have some internal power to be able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and just make it all better. But because I have another internal source, the Spirit of God, who's going to help me fight against you actively. And find peace in the middle of what's going on. Stop allowing fear and anxiety to rule your heart. And the second thing is stop, excuse me, start exercising faith. Start exercising faith. That's the second part of it. Stop allowing those things to rule and start exercising faith. Start exercising faith. You know the African impala can jump to a height of over 10 feet and cover a distance of greater than 30 feet in a jump? 10 feet high, 30 feet long. It's higher than I can jump and further. You too, right? Yet these amazing creatures can be held in a zoo with a three-foot wall. And they never get out. You know why? Because they can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet long. But they will not jump if they can't see where they're going to land. And so all it takes is a three-foot wall to keep them in. They have the ability all along to get out at any moment. They just don't think they do. 
because they can't see where they're going to land. That's part of what faith is, isn't it? Faith is the ability to trust in what we can't see and to get over the self-imposed walls or the walls imposed to us by our circumstances to the power of God. Back in chapter 14, verse 4, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says this, trust in God, trust also in me. That's his way of saying exercise faith. Stop allowing your heart to be ruled by fear and anxiety. Fight against that. And at the same time, place your trust in me. Place your trust in me. I'm, I'm, I'm worthy of that. I have a track record of faithfulness. And if you trust in me, then we'll deal with the, with the fear and the anxiety. You need to exercise your faith. You know, I think sometimes Christians think that faith is something that we exercise once, once when we believe in Jesus and we place our faith in him and we get saved, and then we're good for the rest of our lives. But that's not how faith plays out. Faith is like anything else. It has to be exercised for it to grow and for it to be strengthened. That's how it goes with your muscles, right? You guys have gym memberships or you have stuff at home? Your muscles grow when you do what? When you exercise them. When you don't exercise them, what happens? Well, no, you don't have to tell me that. We all know. We all know what happens there. We all know what happens. Faith is just like that. Faith has constantly got to be exercised in order for it to grow. And he's saying to us, you need to exercise faith. You need to place your faith in me. It's not a one-time thing that you, that you have and then forever sit back and relax. Peter, walking on water. You remember the story? Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on the water. Do you think it took faith to do that? Do you think so? Would it take faith for you to step out of a, wa- out of a boat and walk on top of the water, when Jesus, even if Jesus is the one calling you? It took a lot of faith. Peter begins to sink later, and what does Jesus say to him and to the other disciples? So you of little, little faith. Well, how can Peter have faith and be a man of little faith? Well, because at one moment he's exercising his faith, and the next moment he's not. He's not. The only way that we can be successful in navigating life with peace in the midst of crazy circumstances is to stop allowing fear to, to rule us and to start exercising our faith. Start actively placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That looks like something like this. It looks like a prayer. It looks like a prayer that says, you know, Lord Jesus, life is swirling around me right now. And you know in my heart there's fear and there's anxiety. And the fears and the anxiety that are welling up in my heart have the potential to dominate my thoughts they have the potential to, to squeeze out any joy, happiness in my life. They have the potential to cause me to disobey you. And so right now, right now, I pray for your help in exercising my faith. Help me to, in this moment, trust in you. Help me to trust in you. Help me to trust in your faithfulness. Help me to trust in the fact that you're the source of my peace and that you've promised to grant it to those who look to you for it. And in this very moment, calm my fears and calm my anxious thoughts and grant me your peace that passes understanding. That's what exercising faith looks like. It also is an illustration of what it means to look to Christ. Peter's another good example of that, isn't he? He's looking at Christ. He's walking on the water. The moment he begins to take his eyes off of him, he begins to look at the circumstances, what happens all of a sudden, the image of Christ is eclipsed by the circumstances and his fears, and he begins to sink. Same thing happens in our lives. 
when we focus on the circumstances, when we focus on ourselves, we sink. But when we look to Christ, we find peace. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. John Newton, in one of his great hymns, wrote about this this way. He said this, Though many foes beset you round, and feeble is your arm, that's you, your life is hid with Christ in God, beyond what? The realm of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not fade, or fainting shall not die. Jesus is the strength of every saint, and he will aid you from on high. Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees him always near, a guide, a glory, a defense. What a beauty fear. As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall in him what? Triumph too. Over fear. Over your anxieties. And find peace. Leave you with this. Philippians 4. 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let's pray. And what's the result? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard or garrison your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's a good promise, isn't it? So let me ask you this morning, what's going on in your heart and in your life? What's going on in your thoughts? Have the circumstances that are going on in your life right this moment, have they caused your thoughts to be dominated by fears and anxieties? Or do you find yourself waking up in the morning thinking about fearful things, anxious about what's going on? Do you find yourself having a hard time doing like David said at night, sleeping because of what's going on in your life and what's going on around you? Are fear and anxiety wrecking your thoughts, robbing your joy, stealing your happiness, sabotaging your spiritual life right now? Let me tell you this morning, it does not have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. Christ has triumphed over such things, and through him, as John Newton said, you can triumph too. But first, you have to be made right with your Creator. You have to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to have placed your faith and trust in Him. You have to be a Christian, be saved. If you already are in that position this morning, then you need to stop allowing those things to rule your life. You need to actively begin right now. Pray. Look to Christ and pray. Lord, help me right now to begin fighting these things in my life. Help me to start placing my faith and trust in you. And grant me the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. You've told me it's yours and you give it to me. I believe that promise. So Lord, as I fight and as I exercise faith, I'm trusting you to give me what I don't have and what the world can't give. Make me like David. Make me like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like Daniel, like the Apostle Paul. Give me peace. I promise if you do those things on the authority of the Word of God, you'll find it. You'll find it. You won't understand it because it passes your understanding, but you'll find it. 
And it will make all the difference in the world for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we understand what it's like to have hearts that are troubled and in turmoil. We understand what it's like to have fearful things going on around us, in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our thoughts. We know what it's like to be afraid. We know what it's like to be anxious. We're struck with the reality that our lives are not in our own control. We can't control our circumstances. We cannot control other people. We cannot control what happens to us or what happens around us. But you're sovereign and you can. And Lord, I pray for myself and for those who've gathered here this morning. For whom all of us know what it's like to be consumed by fear and anxiety. And no doubt some have come into this place this morning in that very condition. I'm sure of it, Lord. And I pray that you'd help us all to see the alternative. The gift of peace that you've granted us. That you modeled for us. That you gave to your apostles and so many other godly folks who've looked to you for it. And corporately this morning, we pray together, Lord, grant us peace in the midst of our fears. Grant us peace in the midst of our anxieties. Grant us that calm assurance, that selfless trust, that that courage to face whatever comes. Help us to exercise our faith even right now. And to release whatever things we're holding on to to you. Only to receive what you have to give us by your spirit, your peace. We pray for these things this morning. In Christ's name, amen.